This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. This week or today, our special guest, Jamie Angus, Director of BBC World Service. Welcome, Jamie. Hey, nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. Um, look, I love the BBC. They seem to celebrate their their executives as, as much as the talent, mate. We get, uh, we get quite a few coming through Australia and it's always great to get some insight into what the organisation's doing because I guess everybody you employ is out there busy doing it and you've got to sort of manage that but also explain what you're about. Yeah, no, it's, it's very nice to be here. I mean, Australia is a really important and valued market for us and um, we're available, obviously, on BBC World News here on Foxtel and uh, the BBC World Service blocks that run on the ABC and obviously you can get World Service through your app and BBC.com, of course, a lot, a lot, a lot of Australians, millions of Australians using that every week. So um, because of the kind of empathy between Australian audiences and the BBC as a UK national broadcaster, um, it's a really important audience and one that we like to spend time with and, and in country having a look at the media market here, a fascinating time. Yeah. Look, I've got a lot I want to um, chat to you about today, but just start telling us a little bit about the role. Now, World Service, does that include television, radio broadcasts? So the World Service group is TV, radio and online for all of the news that we do outside the UK. Um, so there are other BBC channels, so the B- BBC Studios channels that you might see that have non-news on them are, are, are run by a separate commercial division, but uh, the World Service Group is all our international news services. And, of course, we operate in multiple languages. We do 42 different language services as well as in English. Obviously, English is a very big global audience for us. Um, so it's a, it's a fa- fascinating and complex and challenging job, but one I find extremely interesting. Yes, the... Um so you access because the how does the BBC structure all its newspeople? Do they they report? Can anybody pull on their services from any of the internal grouping? Yeah, that's right. So we run BBC News. So there's there's probably over five six thousand staff in BBC News in total, and there's about three thousand of those in the World Service. About half of them in the UK. The other in a number of different bureaus around the world. We have a small news bureau here in Australia, sit, sit alongside the ABC teams in, in the ABC. Uh, and um, we produce all our news content, both international and domestic, as one seamless whole. But the but the way that the news is constituted, commissioned and broadcast, obviously in English internationally, is specialist part of what we do. And um, we have a mixed commercial model. So the radio is kind of free to air, doesn't carry advertising, and we sort of give it away. Uh, BBC World News is a subscription channel here, here in Australia, as I say, on Foxtel. And uh, .com is sort of free at the point of use, but carries advertising. So we do have a sort of mixed commercial and public service model, which I think is really interesting for us because it gives us an insight into how challenging the commercial news market is. It's something we're very interested in, and we coexist in that world alongside commercial providers. So I think that gives us a real understanding of some of the big structural problems in the industry, particularly around digital, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about. So uh, I've really valued our our experiences with with the commercial company and the fact that you... If you want the BBC for free, you can get it on World Service Radio and on .com and then the World News Channel is a, a, a more premium offer. So if I'm a reporter, they, they all answer to the one sort of hierarchy or do you have some that just work for World Service? Well, obviously or? the language services reporters would, okay. would, would pretty much work mainly in their vernacular language, although we do use those language service reporters Uh, to report in English. We've just expanded significantly the language services. We've added 12 new language services in the last couple of years because the UK government have invested some additional money in the World Service to do 
more language service coverage. So we have four new Indian regional languages, three Nigerian regional languages, uh, enhanced coverage for the Horn of Africa, other strategically important parts of the world, a Korean service for audiences in North and South Korea. Um, so a lot of those would tend to work mostly for the World Service, but the correspondents working in English, so Howell down here in Australia would, would report for BBC World News, just as for the 10 o'clock news back into the UK, and it's all run as a, as a more or less seamless news operation. Yeah. At times it almost seems as if the BBC is almost a default um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs for, for Great Britain. So I remember just during Brexit, I mean, your... Um, that your chairman or your um, chief executive was in, this is around Christmas, maybe just after, was in Europe talking about, you know, if Brexit goes ahead, how the BBC will probably need to set up another another headquarters somewhere in Europe. Well, that, that's, that's, of course, that's right. And like any large media organisation, Brexit, leaving aside the editorial questions around Brexit, Brexit poses us organisational challenges. And I think what uh, Tony Hall was talking about was the fact that in order to distribute our services inside the EU, we'd need to have a EU-registered uh, operating company. Although, in fact, that doesn't actually mean setting up uh, an office with staff in it's about having a, a an, an operating entity based in Belgium or Luxembourg that would enable us to uplink the channel uh, under under EU uh, EU permissions having left the EU because obviously given we're currently in a EU state we don't need that and we would have to change those arrangements after Brexit. Okay one of the things I think you're doing while you're in Australia is talking about some audience research you did in during 2018. Tell us a little bit about why you do that and, and what did you find out? Well, we're very interested in how media consolidation has affected audiences' understanding and expectations in the news market here, because obviously there's been some big moves in the Australian news market in the last year or so. And we are, you know, we see media consolidation as a global pattern. So Australia is not untypical in this respect. But we wanted to sur survey Australian news users to see if they were concerned about agenda-driven news and whether they valued diversity of media ownership in the in Australian market. And we found some really interesting things. There was a sort of general concern that the country was becoming more divided in terms of its news consumption and becoming more like America and people looking at America and seeing there was a risk of going too far down that road. And also an increase in sort of perception of what we might call agenda-driven news. And we found as many as three quarters of Australians thinking that they were seeing more agenda-driven news over the last five, five years and worrying about the impact that that would have on impartial and quality news journalism in Australia. And obviously the BBC sees itself as part of the diverse media market here. And because we prize ourselves on our independence, our editorial independence, we think that's kind of beneficial for audiences here. And we just wanted to have a better understanding about whether audiences in Australia shared the concerns that we see in many other countries, including the United States. When you talk about um, agenda-driven news, are there different levels of agenda-driven news? I mean, I mean... But if I'd be watching the BBC, am I likely to see you talking about some of your other shows? And is that agenda-driven news or are you talking about something completely different? I think what we're talking about is, you know, do people understand where, when they see a news organisation's content, kind of where it is coming from ideologically in terms of having a, a, an ideological gender? And do people understand that and factor that in? And does it matter to them to have a wider range of different organisations providing the news rather than a smaller range. And I have to say, there's nothing wrong 
per se with agenda-driven news. I think as long as people, audiences understand that's what they're consuming. And you know, for example, that, you know, uh, as a, speaking as a journalist, you know, I love the comment pages. I love, you know, the, 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 the magazines and newspapers that I subscribe to and pay my own money for. I value them because I understand that they come from a specific ideological place or direction, but I just like the comment and I want to read and be, be aware of what's happening. And I think if audiences understand that, that's fine. There's, there's a mixed economy here. There's room for all models. There's a, you've got a PSB model in the ABC. You've got some really, uh, you know, some much more kind of political operations, journals, periodicals. You've got your news channels and pretty vibrant commercial news channels here and, and, and some vibrant national newspapers. And that's okay as long as people are understand what they're watching and reading. And similarly in the international space, the rise of state-funded international broadcasters who don't have transparency and independence. So we're quite worried about Russia today. We're worried about the rise of CGTN, the Chinese state-funded broadcaster, because we think that audiences might see that content and not really understand that it comes from an ideologically slanted viewpoint because they don't label it clearly, but that it does. And I think the risk here is that over time, audiences, particularly younger audiences, might feel that, well, all news is a bit biased and a bit slanted. So no matter who it comes from, it's got the same degree of bias. It's just a question of where where that bias comes from. And I think the BBC, you know, BBC World Service wants to really push back against that and say, no, you know, we, we at least are an international news broadcaster that is independent and that is owned by every person in the UK. It's not beholden to the UK government. Or, or a narrow set of, uh, of commercial or state interests. And, uh, and we wanted to encourage that conversation and see how Australian audiences felt about it. The fact that you're owned by everybody in the UK doesn't stop some people in the UK from trying to exert political pressure, yeah, does for, it? for sure. And, um, you know, and, and indeed the World Service Group does, as I've referenced, we do take some government money to fund... Uh, language services which could not be provided by a commercial model. I think that's a pretty, pretty obvious argument. But I think the key thing is the BBC's operational and editorial independence. And, you know, I, I was before I did this job, I was the editor of the Today programme, which is one of the big domestic news politics sort of current affairs programmes in the UK. And people would always say to you, oh, well, you know, you, you just get rung up and told what to put on air by the government or the opposition. They ring up and shout at you, oh, you're not independent. But of course, the truth of it is that actually, of course, people would ring up and, you know, people would complain if they felt we got things wrong. People would try and exert editorial influence in a, in a, in a proper way. But I never felt in all the years I've just, you know, just completed my 20th year as a BBC journalist. And in all that time, I've genuinely never felt I've come under improper editorial pressure. Because I think in the UK, in particular, audiences and politicians understand that the value of the BBC is in its perceived independence. And that, un- and that un- undermining that does nobody any good. It doesn't do the BBC good. It doesn't do audiences' trust in media any good. And so although BBC coverage of anything is always subject to hot debate, and certainly that's the case around, around Brexit right now, I, I genuinely feel that um, both audiences and politicians respect the BBC's independence and the UK government do as well. Given that you're in um, so many international markets, like countries everywhere, um, are there some countries where you have a better relationship with the local authorities, perhaps, than the officially at yeah, for government sure. level? I mean, we have very, you know, there are some countries in the world where we have a very difficult relationship with, with the authorities. And there are countries in the world, sadly, who don't permit BBC journalists to operate there at all. Um, we're having some real difficulties in Iran at the moment with the Iranian government who are running a campaign of 
judicial harassment against the families of our Iranian journalists based in London who work on the BBC Persian TV service. Uh, there are a number of other African countries where we're sometimes kind of kicked out or harassed or denied accreditation. And like all other international broadcasters, there are countries including China where we're, we're able to operate, but with some restrictions and difficulties. Russia probably falls into that ca category as well. Things are pretty tense, can be tense in Russia sometimes because of the, there's a review going on of the RT TV channel in the UK and there's a lot of, lot of heated language going on around, you know, kind of tit for tats between how the UK treats RT and how... Russia uh, accredits BBC in, in, in Moscow. And so, you know, these are, these are operational challenges for us and we try and manage them as best we can. But I think there are very, very few countries in the world which actually simply forbid any BBC news journalists to, to come into their country because that's not, that's not a list of countries you want to join, you know. And, and I, although I worry about press freedom, I worry about declining press freedoms and I particularly worry about you know, violence, threats and sort of judicial pressure being brought to bear on journalists internationally. I think there is a, you know, th this is not a list of countries and a gang of countries you want to belong to. Um, but we've seen some really worrying cases, you know, both our own Persian service journalists, but also uh, the two uh, photog photographers and Reuters who are in prison in Myanmar at the moment. We've been very concerned about them, spoken out publicly about their case, for example. Uh, and, you know, one of our uh, one of my colleagues, Ahmed Shah, a, a, a Pashtu service journalist, was shot and killed in Afghanistan last year. So it's a very, you know, it's a risky world for journalists out there. And I think a lot, the, the, the thing, the most important thing in my professional life, really, the thing that keeps me awake is, are our journalists safe? That's the, that's the number one priority, actually. Before everything else, we have to keep our own staff safe. I guess you spend a bit of time with people in these markets and they soon judge for themselves, I guess. How visible do they want to be in that market? I mean, some countries handing over the BBC business card to be an entree, I guess, but other places, sort of any news branding is probably best kept to a minimum. I, I think that's right. And there are, you know, there are countries that have, you know, particular problems with their own vernacular services rather than the English language services. So interestingly, you know, some English BBC news in English is available in China, but all of our Chinese language news is blocked in mainland China. And so that's quite a good example. And again, the Iranian government have allowed um, an accredited English language journalist to go to Iran to, to do coverage, but they won't do so for the Farsi-speaking uh, BBC Persian journalists. So I think kind of governments can be sensitive around coverage in the people's local vernacular languages, and that, that's, a, that's always a challenge for us. The term fake news has been a bit of a buzzword for a while. It's particularly when it first sort of, I guess it'd probably be two years now that we've been talking about it for a fair while. What does the term fake news mean now? Do you think? Well, we've, you're, you're right to say it's a troubling term. We ran a big editorial season at the end of last year called Beyond Fake News, partly so we can get over this a bit because even our own journalists are slightly reluctant to, 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 to use the phrase and to tag articles with the term fake news. So, for example, we wanted to have an aggregation page where we brought together all the BBC's insight and learning around fake news which is called beyond fake news and sort of the discussion with our own journalists about could you tag this article fake news so that it aggregates to this page was a, was, a, was an interesting one you know my in my role as world service director i wanted the world service to take a real leadership role globally on this because i think because of the way we can because of the 42 language services we can see into markets and see how fake news is affecting audiences in a way that other organizations can't and i think we have a more sophisticated understanding because of it and i suppose in general my 
thesis has been that I feel that the the argument in the US, you know, the kind of classic President Trump versus Jim Acosta CNN argument about fake news, I see as a big distraction, actually, from a much more serious set of global problems uh, that are particularly invidious in countries, you know, that are less in the public eye. And are, and that fake news in those territories is often leading to a real threat to people's livelihoods and well-being and their security and actually ultimately has led, led to people losing their lives. And partly that could be around, you know, vigilante gangs in India spreading fake news about child abduction on WhatsApp or it could be people trying to foment political violence in, in parts of Nigeria between different ethnic groups. Or, you know, I can think of lots of different examples that we see. And I think my case has been that there is a global challenge here. There's not one simple solution. There's a really mixed bag of solutions around improving standards of global literacy, about improving the way that digital platforms surface high-quality news over fake news or poor-quality news, specifically around the use of chat apps and messaging apps, which is something I'm very interested in. You know, kind of four or five different axes of solution that all of these things will have to happen over the next five to ten years to improve the climate around fake news, because I think it is an issue that's going to be with us for a generation and not just for a, for a year or two. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, well said. I mean, when it first started, I thought the media jumped on it and beat it up maybe too much. And then, as you said, but then it became, people became aware actually, oh, well, there really is a big problem and it goes a lot deeper than, than we might have initially thought. And now it's it can be quite a, uh, a tangled tangled area for people to sort of get a grip of. Yeah, it is a vexed term, but but I do think that some of the underlying issues around... It is, so it seems to me that there's not actually a, a shortage of high-quality news out there, whether it's mm. from the BBC or a quality commercial publisher or another PSB. There's, there's plenty of quality news out there, but the economic model is very challenging in some national markets. The economics and the structural changes in the digital advertising industry and the rise of the two or three really big dominant tech platforms is creating a real strain on commercial quality, commercial news. And I think the sort of algorithm-driven discovery process in digital journalism is also not working well enough in the sense that too often, whether you're searching YouTube or you're on Google or you're looking at your Facebook feed or you're on Apple News or whatever that you find that the algorithm is driving poorer quality content over higher quality and that attribution amongst audiences. So audiences don't, you know, attribution in third-party sites is low. So people might read an article from the, the BBC or the Australian or, you know, uh, or, you know, the AFR, but they wouldn't necessarily know that who it had come from because of attribution we know is low. And that breaks the link between audiences and trusted news providers and, and it increases audience cynicism. And I think that's one of the things I'm really worried about. You mentioned algorithms there and people immediately think of Facebook and Google. Um, you partner with Facebook, I think, for distribution of a lot of your content. Do you think they're, they've been genuine about trying to, I don't know, improve their offering to its users? I think it's no doubt that Facebook have gen genuinely woken up in the last probably 48 months or so to the scale of the threat that this poses to their global operating model. And the, the tweaking of the, you know, the kind of infamous tweaking of the algorithm that has downgraded news in Facebook's feed has had a huge effect on news publishers, particularly commercial news publishers, but probably reflects Facebook's understanding that 
the sort of becoming a primarily a news publisher has created huge problems for them that they didn't necessarily go out looking for. You know, I mean, I think Facebook's Facebook's answer is to create sort of global funds and invest, you know, invest in news initiatives and but but they control that money. So they they take in advertising money and they give relatively small amounts back under it and they take the decisions about where that money comes from. And I think that in general, commercial news publishers probably want to see, not just for Facebook to be fair, but for Google, Facebook, Amazon, you know, all, all the big publishing platforms. They want to just see a fairer redistribution of advertising income at source and allowing advertisers to have access to data, you know, third-party data and so on, that just ensures a fairer return of revenues to quality publishers. And it seems to me that that is the fundamental issue that is not working in the commercial news market right now. And, you know, it's not for the, really for the BBC to say whether the r route to solving that is a regulatory one or a kind of voluntary one by tech platforms or whatever. But you, you only need to look at what's happening inside the EU. You know, Brussels taking a really aggressive stance now, I think, towards regulating tech platforms. And I think that Facebook and others have woken up to that and are trying to respond in order to preempt, you know, regulatory solutions that they don't particularly want. Tell me, does... How do you use Facebook to reach audiences, and do you need to spend with them some sort of marketing money to get a to get a reasonable value out of the service? I think Facebook have really valued what the BBC has published on their platform, and I think to be fair, Facebook offers a route to audiences, a unique route to audiences. So I'll just give you two examples. So we know that inside the UK, a particular underserved section of the audience are female news consumers and also female news consumers from lower socioeconomic groups who don't consume news very much at all. And that's an underserved segment in the UK who a nationally funded, university-funded PSB has got to reach. And so we found that optimising content for Facebook reaches that section of women audience particularly effectively. So we, you know, we've really made a push on that. I also think globally, you know, there are a large section of audience that if you ask them in the street, are you interested in international news, they would say no. But if they see something in their news feed that in, sort of enchants them and draws them in and informs them and helps explain their world, then they become a BBC News consumer without actually having kind of actively opted in or sort, sort us out. And you, you have to feel that that way of building a new audience it's a good thing for news publishers, particularly quality news publishers all around the globe. But it does come with a downside. And I think that some commercial publishers who become very reliant on Facebook referral traffic then find if Facebook or another platform indeed adjusts their algorithm, they've dropped down the rankings and suddenly everything falls, can fall to pieces very quickly. The BBC happily is not totally reliant on that because of our funding structure, which has some license fee money, some UK government money and some commercial money. We can probably plough a more stable path, but we're not immune from it at all. And we did see a big drop off in Facebook traffic after the algorithm change. So I guess you need to navigate that um, when you say package some international news that might be of interest with the fine line between trivialising it and making it stupid, as opposed to pulling out some facts that are that are worthy. I mean, you, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of maybe a, a, a country not many people have heard of goes has an election 
and someone might say you wouldn't believe what these people wore when they went to the polling booths, but 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 you'd have a different angle, right? So you yeah. So it's interesting you mentioned that actually because I think global election, you know, big national elections of global significance are a big deal for us. So the two we particularly prioritise this year is coverage of the Indian elections, which are coming up now, I think, next month, and the Nigerian election, which is currently underway, the presidential election in Nigeria. I was in Nigeria just at the start of January. And we feel that the BBC's got a unique role to play in those elections. Firstly, is sort of countering fake news in the election cycle. So we've just inked, actually, in the last 48 hours, a really exciting deal with WhatsApp in India that will allow us to monitor, call out, and sort of publish authoritative versions of fake news in the Indian election cycle because we see a huge amount of material circulating on WhatsApp in India that is unmonitored and unregulated. And actually WhatsApp, for the first time, are going to allow the BBC to publish at scale in, into, into WhatsApp. Because WhatsApp is a platform that was never optimised for news publishing, but its users have kind of hacked it in the way that, you know, young, smart people do nowadays to do exactly that. And so I think there's a huge challenge for, like, how do you, in a national election like that, or like the Nigerian election, where you know that fake news is going to be an issue, how do publishers put their authoritative content where audiences are so that it sort of seeps back into the system that way. So absolutely, we see ourselves as having a distinctive public service purpose in big global elections like that. Jamie, there's a little bit of discussion in Australia, and I won't pretend there's a lot, but it it occupies some people's minds sometimes about the, especially in commercial news organisations, having to compete with publicly funded bodies. Is that much of a debate elsewhere around the world? And how does the BBC address something like that? Well, it is in the UK. And I think in the UK, we have a sort of regulatory structure that means that every service the BBC provides undergoes a public service test to measure its market impact against its public service value. And so there are things that the BBC has stopped doing that it used to do because it was perceived that, you know, by that independent regulatory process, as well as the BBC's own internal assessments, it was measured that it was having a disproportionate effect on commercial competition, so we stopped doing them. Um, but we but we think that every country's got to find its own regulatory climate around that. And I'm obviously aware, having sort of stumbled into the middle of this a bit this week, <laughs> that the debate in, is still a very vibrant one about the role of the ABC and com- between the ABC and commercial news providers here in Australia. And it's right that, you know, Australian, you know, the Australian public and your your democracy and your own regulators find the right way to make that assessment. I mean, I know that there's a huge amount that the ABC do, obviously on their own and also jointly with us, that has huge public service value. But um, but at the same time, the commercial space here is a challenging one. My own view, actually, is that the big problem for commercial news publishers is not that PSBs are drawing away their traffic, actually. I think if you look at the overall growth in you know, digital users and digital page impressions over the past five and ten years, commercial news publishers are struggling not because of a lack of traffic and not because that traffic is being drawn away from them by PSBs, actually. I think the problem is, just to go back to the point we were talking about a little earlier, the problem is this structural link between, you know, advertising revenues going back to quality commercial publishers. And I don't think PSBs have a role in that, actually. So I'm really worried that... 
PSBs just become a sort of whipping boy for um, commercial problems. And, and then the, the real risk is that you end up tearing down your, your, your public service broadcaster to no real effect and you then don't have a great PSP and you don't have a functioning commercial news market. And I think that's, that's absolutely where we don't want to end up, whether that's in the US or Australia or the United Kingdom. Yeah, so you're saying sort of damage to a news brand can often be self-inflicted, right, because... Sorry, just explain... Damage to a news brand, if it can be self-inflicted, if they've let commercial pressures... Let the commercial side encroach too far onto the editorial, if you like. Yeah, I mean... That wall's broken down a little bit. It's it's partly that, but it's also, you know, you can see in every market there are really successful commercial news providers and often it's sort of the middle of the market that's really challenging. So if you've got a kind of free... Sorry. If you've got a completely free model often that can work if you've got scale. And if you've got a really uh, sort of really specialised elite bottle, whether it's B2B or whether it's, you know, a sort of finance or business, something really high-end niche that people will pay for, that can work. What really struggles is the, the middle of the market where you're not necessarily distinguishing yourself from your competitor set and you're just trying to sell you know, spot ads to, or, or, or you're doing branded content to try and, try and make that pay. And you see that pattern across the developed media markets. And you look at what the New York Times has done around subscription. They've built a really effective and strong subscription model. But even, even their subscription model may struggle to make up the disappearance of ad revenues. Mm. And um, so I think the lessons from that is people will pay for quality news, but they might want to pay for it in different ways than they have done in the past. You're, when you look at the overall output around the world, what um, what what territories is there still upside for for audience growth for you? Do you think are there places where you you think yeah, gee, we've, we can really reach a lot more people than we are? Well, I think yeah, in terms of reach growth, I think um, English audiences in India is an, a very interesting mm-hmm. area for us. We're quite strong in India, but we've most of our expansion has been in Indian vernacular languages. So we'd certainly be looking to grow more there. I think the really huge one is China. You know, I mean, China is so massive in terms of potential audience growth, but so unbelievably difficult to operate in in other ways that you know, a kind of tiny growth in reach, percentage growth in reach, can China can transform a news organisation's reach. But I'm not completely optimistic that we'll be able to achieve that because actually I think so much of it's outside our control. We can produce excellent Chinese language digital news, which we do. We can produce the English news, TV news channel, BBC World News and BBC.com, which we do. But unless they're actually unblocked in China, um, we're never going to be able to reach that many people. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've had a little bit of experience in China and meeting some of the um, Chinese news organisations, they're terribly friendly, terribly nice people, but you get a feeling there's, even they come up against the sort of bureaucracy there that is, that is hard, to, hard to navigate. Well, I think that's just a genuine question about where China is now, which is, you know, this is something that's come up editorially around, you know, the Huawei story or any number of other Chinese corporate stories, which is how separate from the Chinese state is any large media house corporation or, or, or any other large Chinese entity. And 
the answer is that we don't know and it's quite <laughs> difficult to measure and reassure. And that's a challenge for businesses operating in China just as it is for media organisations. But you're right that all international media organisations want to get their content into China. And BBC gets a lot of content in China in the non-news space, so a kind of natural history programming and entertainment formats and, um, you know, BBC learning English. There's a huge appetite to learn English in China. So we're present in China in lots of different ways, but it's not... Uh, it's a difficult market to build consistently into just because you it's unpredictable in that way. I'm not let, letting you out of here without talking a little bit about Brexit. And I'm not, not sure how much personally you're tired of chatting about it now, but I, I know it does it does wear some people out. I know in my household, I, I could sit there and watch it forever, but there, there are other members of the household who have a strict 10-minute um, attention span and like, this is going off, okay? I've had enough. Um, so, so, so tell me about it. What is the – I understand, obviously, the interest in the UK, but again, there I guess there's a there's – a, uh, a, a, a tire factor too for some of the some of the population, but outside of the UK, is the interest what what is the level of interest? Do you think? I think the interest is high, but for slightly different reasons. So I think there's just sort of there's a bit of just spectator sport about you know we know you know we quite often run the live pictures from Parliament and mm. the speakers shouting <laughs> order order and Theresa May's and Jeremy Corbyn and all, you know there's actually people like that and you see a lot of that in the US they run the Parliament pictures. So there's a bit of bit of spectator sport, but there's also a, a wish to understand you know, what the motivations were for the vote and how it's going to be delivered. And obviously it has a relevance to anyone interested in the EU as a trading bloc. So if you're business audiences who are interested in trade with the UK and trade with the EU, that's extremely interesting. Anyone interested in international trade in general. But I think also it has a relevance to kind of aspirations in, in other states and countries to sort of, you know, we know it has a relevance to any state that has you know, is either thinking about breaking away from a wider block or wanting to go into a wider block. Because it is would be the first time that a, a state had left the, the EU. And so we know that it has relevance for other parts of the world and people, you know, countries and regions that are wondering how far to integrate and how far to maintain national distinctiveness in, in econ economies and political uh, distinctiveness. It just, just has huge relevance in all different parts of the world. So we're still seeing, you know, I think the two kind of big massive global stories that election of President Trump and Brexit that have dominated a lot of the English-speaking international news coverage over the last couple of years. We see those those stories still draw big audiences. And as we get closer to March the 30th in the UK, when, you know, barring some change of plan, we will leave the EU, um, that we expect those audiences to continue to build. Could I, are you allowed to share a personal view? Do you think that will happen? I don't have any personal views, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, all, all, I, all I'm saying, I guess, in, if I can go into the realm of punditry for a brief, mm. brief moment, yes. is that all things being equal, Article 50 means that, that, you know, the mechanics of Article 50 means that all things being equal, Britain will leave the EU at the end of March. And the question now is, will there be a, an agreed deal? Will Parliament and the... EU agree, uh, re-agree a, a consensual deal or will there be a so-called no-deal Brexit? The only way in which that, that can't happen would be if Parliament, as I understand it, you know, voted to extend or defer Article 50, which the EU states would also have to agree to. And I, I couldn't say whether that was going to happen, but my, my sense at the moment is that one way or another, we'll know by March the 30th what's going to happen. So if it happens, sorry, I won't dwell on this too long, but if it if that happens on March 30, right, and they do leave, is it hard to go back from that? 
I mean, can you do deals after that? And well, it, it, this is this, it gets complicated at this point because <laughs> it depends what kind of deal you leave with. So if the if the if Britain left the EU and remained in a permanent customs union, for example, which is one of the options under discussion, it wouldn't be able to reach trade deals independently with any other trading blocks. If Britain left under a no-deal scenario, so it left without a deal, an agreement in place with the EU, it could then immediately open discussions with other independent trading blocs to reach its own international trade agreements. So it very much depends under what set of circumstances. And, you know, under Prime Minister Theresa May's plan, as originally put to Parliament, they would be able to seek independent trade deals around services but not around goods in the transition period. So it very quickly gets down into quite a quite a high level of detail and I think a level of detail at which you know ideally you want your parliament and the EU to be agreeing a sensible series of uh, sensible range of agreements that then parliament can then vote on whether it whether it wants to approve it or not and that's kind of where we are you know there is a deal on the table parliament voted it down it's now been kind of reopened with the EU but we are running short of time to to reach an agreement so it seems to me that a no deal brexit is a increasingly likely outcome whether that will happen we, we won't know for sure there's going to be a fascinating couple of months isn't it and it's 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 rare to have such a big decision made without a war attached to it because things like this are usually decided by countries in battle often aren't they I well mean, i suppose you know, it's one of the positive things you know it's one of the positive ca- cases you could make for the sort of <laughs> modern modern global order even though that seems under pressure in loads of ways the kind mm. of multi- multilateral world worldview is that he, despite all this, and although it's getting extremely heated and, you know, tempers are getting frayed and, and r- running low, goodwill is running low, that this is still a great exercise in democracy, whatever your mm. position, and that uh, our national parliament in the UK, and along with the government and 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 the European Commission, are really getting stuck into this in, in some detail. And I think overall that probably just about presents a positive case for democracy, even though it's a bit look, looks pretty messy from the outside, right? Absolutely. Look, let's sort of wind up our chat. I want to ask you about ratings and, and audience measurement and things like that. How much does that um, – well, first of all, yeah, how, how much does that guide what you do, I guess, that – Um, Only in the very broadest sense. So I think we have a global audience target. So we're trying to, in the centenary of the year of the BBC in 2022, reach 500 million people a week. And we're currently at 379 million weekly. So we're well on the way to achieving that. So we have a global reach target. And obviously, we want to grow reach for all what our What percentage services. of the world would that be if you get there? What's that? Well, it depends because it's sort of it's in multiple languages, including in English. Because you only you judge from a certain age. Yeah, to but if you, you you know you you I, I think the the nature of the five hundred uh, the, the nature of the five hundred million target when the director general set it a few years ago was that I think that he sees the BBC as being a global player at scale and in the world of Netflix and the, kind of the rise of the streaming giants that are kind of in a way supranational, you know. Um, he feels that both in news and in entertainment and so on in general, the BBC has to be a, a global scale player, even though its UK-based funding is sort of limited by the size of the licence fee. So I think 500 million, is that's part of the sense of time. It just keeps us as one of the few remaining global players. But because we're a public service broadcaster at, at heart, we... We're never going to sacrifice. We're, we're never going to go for reach over quality, and so we don't do, you know, clickbait. We don't have a sort of unlimited expansionist dash into, you know, trivial or 
news that would people would just click on just because we, we have a public purpose which is that we want to you know provide independent and impartial international news to audiences wherever they are in the globe particularly in countries where people don't have a lot of choices and that and that's our sort of guiding mission within the 500 million target and that, and that's good because that allows us to take choices around quality and to never to be afraid to double down on stories we feel are big and important and i have from you know sometimes talk to the online teams and say you know if you want to you might want to publish a story which you know only 5000 people are ever going to read but if it's an important story we'll be able to do it in, a, in and that and that psb has an ability to do that and that that is liberating for the journalists who work for us yeah i mean yeah sure we i get it that you, there's stuff you just cover regardless of of how many might click or watch it listen to it but are there things where you've had feedback where you've you've found an audience interest and you think okay we could exploit this a bit better and maybe do a specialist show or yeah I mean, reach out to a you know a freelancer more, to supply I think it's it? more thinking about how or what audiences want from news particularly from BBC news so in many markets we're a second source so people will go to a national provider first and then they'll come to the BBC and actually often and increasingly, particularly in languages other than English, they don't necessarily want headline and breaking news, or rather they don't only want headline and breaking news. They want context, they want explanatory, you know, visual journalism, data journalism, better online video, animation, storytelling. They want context that helps them understand a sometimes baffling world and the complex issues in it. And and so that kind of near news content is becoming an increasingly large part of what we're doing. So we've expanded enormously our African TV offer with the, with the additional government investment. And a lot of that is business, sport, children's programming, well-being, programming for women audiences. It's not headline news. It's, it's kind of help me understand my world TV programming that is sort of different to the, what the core mission of the World Service had been in the past. But it's really, really important. It's enabling us to grow audiences. And crucially, it's tackling a kind of deficit that the co primarily commercial models in a lot of those African countries doesn't allow that kind of content to be produced at scale. So the BBC is able to do it. Mm. All right, look, we might leave it there. Jamie Angus, thanks uh, so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure catching up with you, Director of BBC World Service. And of course, lots online television and radio indeed yep. that's right the bbc.com and bbc world news and the world service available here in australia wonderful thanks jamie <laughs> nice to talk to you